Blaise Pascal was surely right when he said all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. All men seek happiness. As Christ preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he issues an invitation to happiness. He issues an invitation to flourishing. Jesus, in this sermon, teaches his disciples a way of living. He tells them of a worldview. He teaches them how to order their steps. He preaches also to the crowds, compelling them to join him. And in all of it, he is giving us a way by which we may flourish. Now, it's a specific kind of flourishing. The invitation that Christ gives in his Sermon on the Mount is what I would call a kingdom-oriented Christ-centered flourishing. It is a kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, meaning, as you know, if you've been tracking with our study in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is concerned to present Jesus above all other things as the King, the promised messianic King who will bring His kingdom. It's not yet, it is to come And so we shouldn't be surprised as Jesus preaches this first sermon in Matthew's gospel that he emphasizes the coming kingdom. It's a kingdom-oriented sermon, a kingdom-oriented invitation. But in addition, it is not merely kingdom-oriented, it is kingdom-oriented and Christ-centered. It is not merely an ethic. As Jesus teaches his disciples, and so also the crowds, a way of living, he is not simply teaching them a good ethic. But in each and every teaching, taken properly in its broader context, it is always, first and foremost, an invitation to him. To come unto Christ. To declare you a a sinner a needy sinner in need of a Savior. It is kingdom-oriented. It is Christ-centered. And it is an invitation to flourish. As Jesus gives this teaching, He is not intending to create a burden for you to carry. He does not intend to crush His disciples. He desires their very best. He wants for them to flourish both in this life and in the next. 
And thus he preaches. And in so doing, he gives an invitation, a kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered invitation to flourish. The Beatitudes are the beginning of that sermon. Perhaps the most famous part of the whole of the sermon, the Beatitudes can be thought of as something of a table of contents. Something of a table of contents that helps us get into the rest of the sermon. Now that isn't to say that every beatitude has a corresponding explanation or expansion within the sermon. That's not what I mean when I say a table of contents. Rather, as you study and come to terms with the beatitudes, we are introduced to a number of salient themes, key ideas that then will be developed later on in the sermon. So that it can be said that if you really come to terms with the Beatitudes, you are now well placed to read the rest of the sermon. If the sermon as a whole is an invitation to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, then so also are the Beatitudes. In their whole and also in their part. Every beatitude is an invitation. Every beatitude is an invitation to a way of life that leads us in the same direction as the sermon as a whole, namely to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing. It is a flourishing, a happiness that everybody seeks. And so this morning we consider just one of those beatitudes The very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as to come to terms with it, I want to ask some good questions of this verse. Simple questions, but necessary questions. What does it mean when Jesus says blessed? What does it mean when he speaks of the poor in spirit? And what does it mean when he promises that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? There are three questions to ask of our text this morning, beginning with what does it mean when Jesus pronounces blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you have been tracking with our series in Matthew, it shouldn't surprise you to hear that when Jesus makes this announcement, he is drawing from an Old Testament concept. I trust that you've been following the way in which Matthew presents Jesus' life. Always the Old Testament scriptures are close at hand. He's drawing from them for good reason. Matthew was writing primarily for a Jewish audience who would know and be familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. As Jesus sounds this emphatic declaration, blessed are the poor in spirit, there is an Old Testament antecedent that is in view. With that stated, we actually have a problem on our hands. And the problem is, if you go to the Old Testament scriptures, there are two different words that come through in our English translation with the one word, Blessed. The problem is, as you go to the Old Testament, 
in the original language, there are two different words that carry different meanings, both of which get translated for us in our English Bibles with the one word, blessed. In part, it's a translation issue. I praise God for the many good English translations that we have. You need to give thanks to God for your English Bible. We are blessed to have sound, solid English translations that make God's truths accessible to us. With that being said, the very act of translation from one language to another is always difficult because no two languages map exactly on top of one another. And so as you move from, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language into English, there are times when the English can't quite capture what is being said in the original text. So there are two words in the Old Testament, both of which get translated in English as this one word, blessed. One of those words in the Old Testament Scriptures is blessed in the sense as we find it in chapters like Deuteronomy chapter 28. You don't need to turn there. I can explain it for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is on the border of the Promised Land. He has led his people thus far. They are preparing to enter. And so Moses gives this last sermon to them. And in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, he lists many blessings that they will know if they obey God's word. He says with great specificity, if you obey God's word, your fields will be full of of crops. If you obey God's word, your storehouses and your barns will be overflowing. If you obey God's word, you will not lack. Lots of very specific blessings. And what you see there is a kind of cause-effect relationship. It's mirrored within the same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 28. It is mirrored by some negative curses. The opposite of this sense of blessing is cursed you will be if you do not obey God's word, because a locust plague will come. Again, great levels of specificity. Cursed will you be if you fail to obey God's word, because a plague will come upon you. You see these cause-effect relationships. The sense of this word, blessed, in that context is of God intervening in human lives now, in the present, with a very kind of action-reaction kind of relationship. That's one word that we find in the Old Testament Scriptures that is translated blessed. Another word, different, is the blessed that we read of by way of example in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk, stand, sit with the sinners and the scoffers, but rather he meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. He is like a fruit tree planted by streams of living water 
whose leaf does not wither and whose fruit is abounding. And on the last day, he will stand with the righteous. That's a different word in the original language that gets translated in our English text as blessed. The difference being in Psalm 1, an action-reaction, cause-effect relationship is not the primary idea. Rather, the psalmist gives to us a way of living, a manner of life. Blessed is the man who orients his life around my word. No specific promise to the effect of, I will ensure that your, your storehouses are full. When you read my word, you'll see a reaction. That's not the idea of the blessed in Psalm 1. Rather, I am giving you a way of living wherein you will flourish. Life will work out well for you if you orient yourself around my word. You will understand the world around you according to my truth. And you'll make better decisions and you'll be wiser in your steps. It will go well for you if you study my word. Blessed is the man. And so you see these two types of blessing in the Old Testament, two different words. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount and we read, blessed. One question we have to answer is, which is intended? And most likely, it is the blessing of the second sort, the second variety. And the reason I say that is at least twofold. First of all, notice we don't have in the Beatitudes a second list of curses, In the Old Testament, you often find that when that action-reaction kind of blessing is given, immediately following, as is the case in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there is a list of attendant curses. This is what will happen if you don't obey. Deuteronomy chapter 28, Leviticus 26, and many other passages, we see the blessings and the curses. We don't see them here in the immediate context. And then the other reason is to note holistically the Sermon on the Mount, as we've said several times in the last few weeks, is a sermon that is intended to get into every facet of our lives. Jesus is all-encompassing as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and he teaches us through this sermon a way of living. And so it seems, as he says in the Beatitudes, blessed, he's teaching us not so much an action, reaction, and intervention of God in our lives here and now in response to something we have or have not done, but rather he is compelling us to a way of flourishing. He is giving to us a manner of living assuring us that if we are to live in this way, life will go well. Not even so much in your circumstances, but in your perception, in your apprehension, in your willingness to interpret the world according to the truths in God's Word, you will flourish. 
Now, it might be that you're looking at these and saying, well, hang on, I see at every single beatitude there is an attendant promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that not the action reaction? You're right to note that, but all of these promises concern the final day of salvation. They are what we call eschatological promises. They are not speaking of God's interceding work. He's stepping into human lives now as a response on a Monday afternoon or a Friday morning. And so what we actually see in each of the Beatitudes is a wonderful double truth that there is a flourishing given to us if we would heed this principle and a promise that will be realized on the last day. Both are true with every beatitude. Blessed, flourishing, you will be if you live in according to this principle and note there is a promise that awaits you on the last day. With all of that being said, it would be entirely appropriate to translate this word that is so often rendered blessed in your Bible as flourishing, joyful, happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn Happy are the meek. And it's important to note that. It's important to note that God cares for your happiness. God cares for your flourishing. God cares that you would be a joyful Christian. I labor that point because there are so many Christians who perceive Christ to be an austere God who keeps his distance, who is up in the sky and cares only that we obey, does not care at all for our flourishing in the, in the day to day, cares only for our obedience. And in large measure, that apprehension of Christ and of the Christian faith has come about because this whole book has been issued as a series of prohibitions. Too many Christians understand the Christian faith merely as a list of prohibitions. Don't do this and don't do this and this is forbidden. Undoubtedly, there are prohibitions in Scripture. Do not mishear me. But even the prohibitions are given as act of love by God towards us for our flourishing. God cares for your well-being. He cares for your happiness. He wants for you to flourish. So as a first step, every time you read the Sermon on the Mount, every time you read the Beatitudes, you would do well to minister to your own heart the simple and yet important truth, Christ desires that I would flourish. And with that in place, we then ask our second question, what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? Because this is the means that Jesus is giving us in this verse by which we are to flourish. Blessed, flourishing, 
happy are who? The poor in spirit. So what does that mean? Perhaps we can get into the meaning of this phrase by first considering what it doesn't mean, what it does not mean. To be poor in spirit does not mean to be mean-spirited. It is no excuse to be unloving, to lack patience, to lack grace, mercy, kindness towards others. Christians of all people should show and exude those characteristics on a daily basis. To be poor in spirit does not mean we are mean-spirited. To be poor in spirit does not mean that we are to be intellectually poor. Christians are to be students. Christians are to be students of this book. Christians are to be thinkers. We're to be those who meditate. We're to be those who wrestle with the truth given to us in God's Word. There is no excuse to be lazy. Your reading of God's Word should be something that is mentally demanding. If we are truly serious about knowing our God, we are to be those who study and think to be poor in spirit is no excuse for intellectual poverty. To be poor in spirit does not mean that we are to have a low self-image. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he is in no way diminishing the theology of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God asserts the truth that you are made in his image. Unlike anything else in the created order, every single person on the earth is an image bearer. And that infers a certain dignity, a dignity to every single human being, one that cannot be taken away. No matter what decisions you have made, what mistakes you have made, what sins you have committed, no matter how you have lived your life, there is a residing dignity in every single person by virtue of the fact that you have been made in God's image. Self-loathing, in that respect, is prohibited. It is not a low self-image. What poor in spirit means is that you have declared spiritual bankruptcy. You have said to God, I uphold the theology of Genesis 1, I am made in your image, and therein there is a dignity. But I also uphold the theology of Genesis 3, and I am a sinner. You declare spiritual bankruptcy based upon your sin. You take seriously both the depth and the extent of your sin. You take seriously Jesus' teaching wherein he says, if you have allowed yourself to think a bad thought in your heart against another person, you have given given way to the same sin that gives rise to murder. It is no different. 
you declare with Jesus in accordance with his teaching that if you have allowed your heart to long after somebody else who is not your spouse, you have given way to the same impulses that give rise to adultery. The depth of your sin is far greater than you in and of yourself or the world would allow you to think. Additionally, the extent of your sin is vast. There is sin in everything that you do. Isaiah the prophet says, even your best, best deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. Which means in your prayer time, there is sin. In your study of the Scripture, there is sin. In your coming to church, in your embracing of brothers and sisters in Christ, there is sin. It is everywhere, like oil seeping through the cracks. There is not one area of your life where sin is not found. And so in its depth and in its extent, you are a sinner. And to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that before a holy God. To say, I am spiritually bankrupt. I bring absolutely nothing of any value to the table. To be spiritually poor is to adopt the position of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. You remember when Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It is not to side with the Pharisee who approached God and said, God, I praise you. I praise you that I do this and this and this. And I praise you that I'm not like this person and this person. Oh, praise be to God for my righteousness. That is not spiritually poor. To be spiritually impoverished is to adopt the posture of the tax collector who beats his chest and cannot even raise his eyes to the heavens. And he says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. That is what it means to be spiritually impoverished. Now notice the curious juxtaposition that Christ sets up when he says, flourishing are the poor in spirit. In the world's eyes, this makes no sense. Flourishing, happy, are the ones who declare themselves to be bankrupt. How is it that Christ can tell us we will flourish when we arrive at this position of spiritual poverty? Why does, why does that work? Why is that relationship true? The answer is because in so much as you have failed to arrive at a position of spiritual poverty, you are in essence failing to affirm the truths of Genesis 3 and saying to God, I know better than you. You are, in essence, failing to uphold the truth of sin in your life and saying to God, I'm not as bad as your word tells me I am. It is akin to a second hand on a clock. 
declaring to the clockmaker, I know more than you. And then turning in completely the opposite direction. That is what it means to fail to declare spiritual bankruptcy and the Scriptures speak to those who conduct their lives in such a manner, telling us the way of the transgressor is hard. You have chosen to say to God, I am not as bad as your word says I am, and thereby you have chosen a hard path. God in His wisdom has established this fallen world in such a manner that His Word teaches us how to live. And to the degree that you fail to submit to it and somehow on some level declare yourself to be righteous, you are choosing a hard path. Proverbs says, pride comes before destruction. And so, with that being said, the inverse is also true. Blessed, flourishing, happy are those who say, I have nothing. I've got nothing to bring. And in that declaration, there is great joy. Now, the question comes, If it's true that blessed are the poor in spirit, just how poor do we need to be? Or to ask it a slightly different way, if we were to search the writings of other world religions, we would find this teaching. Taken in isolation, we would find in other systems of belief the simple premise that to abase yourself in this life will bring a degree of peace. In that respect, Jesus here is not being entirely unique. Taken in isolation, what is Jesus teaching here that other religions don't have? Or, how poor do we need to be? to obtain to the flourishing that Jesus is promising? And the answer is, you need to be so poor that you appeal to a carpenter from Nazareth as your only source of spiritual wealth. You need to have arrived at the absolute zero of your spiritual account so as to be willing to look at a man who was rejected, scorned, beaten, mocked, and crucified on a cross and say, I find my wealth there. I am ready to cast myself upon that man as the only source of my spiritual wealth. See, taken in its broader context, you realize this teaching is entirely unique. Do not lose sight of the fact that Jesus just said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and He is the kingdom bringer. He is the King, and so it stands to reason the only kind of poverty that is acceptable and will bring true, lasting flourishing is the poverty that clings to the man that just commended us to repent. That is how poor you have to be. 
to bring a level of poverty to the table, yet clinging on to something of your own doing is no poverty at all. To come to Christ and say, I recognize my destitute state and yet there is this one thing over here that I think is of some value is no poverty at all. The only poverty that is acceptable and will bring the kind of blessing that Christ promises here is one that says, I have nothing and Christ has everything and so I cast myself upon Him. It is to sing with a ready heart as the hymn writer teaches us, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is spiritual poverty. Now by way of application, there are many smiles on a Sunday. There are many smiles on a Sunday. People arrive with a smile. You greet one another with a smile. You leave with a smile. And I know enough to know that those smiles are not always representative of true flourishing. We put on our Sunday best. We put on our Sunday smiles. And I know that often the Sunday smiles do not represent true flourishing. What often is true is that the Sunday smiles are there to cover a lack of flourishing, a lack of happiness, a lack of joy. The Sunday smiles do not present an accurate picture of what is happening in the home, what is happening beneath the surface, and what is happening Monday through Saturday. And if you are here today and you know that you are not flourishing in the way that Jesus desires that you would flourish, it may be because you have not yet declared yourself to be spiritually bankrupt. You are choosing the way of the transgressor with a wonderful facade that has many people thinking that you are. And yet you are clinging on to a sense of your own righteousness and for that reason there is a lack and absence of flourishing in your life. And if you have never cast yourself upon Christ, you will not know this blessing of which He speaks. And I would encourage you this day to give up. To stop trying. And to say, I have nothing. And I choose to find my spiritual value in Jesus. Now if you're a Christian, the same truth sadly can be true for you. Having put your faith in Christ and following Him to some measure, enjoying and experiencing God's patience and His grace each and every day, you understand your spiritual poverty and yet 
there are areas of your life where you are clinging on to a way in which you think you know better than God. There are areas in your life where you are refusing to let go and even there declare spiritual bankruptcy. God in His patience has not yet disciplined you for your persistence in sin, but you are not enjoying the flourishing to which Jesus commends us because you are clinging on to a sense of your own righteousness, albeit in one area of your life. Let go. Submit to God. Say afresh and in new areas of your life, I am spiritually poor. Because therein there is great blessing. Now what then about this second half of the verse? Our last question for this morning to be Blessed is to flourish. It's a way of living. It is to to prosper spiritually, to be joy-filled and happy. Who is it that are blessed? It is those who declare themselves to be spiritually impoverished. And then Jesus adds, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, I just want to stress that word, Blessed is not setting up a cause-effect relationship. It is portraying a way of living. Coupled with that is then a promise. So it's a, a twofold truth given to us in each beatitude. The truth that this is a way of living wherein you will find happiness coupled with an end time promise. The kingdom is not now. It hasn't arrived. It is yet to come. Jesus will bring it when he comes a second time. And what Jesus promises is that those who have truly lived their lives in the utmost spiritual poverty, clinging to Christ as their only source of spiritual worth, those that have lived in that manner will be the recipients, the beneficiaries of this kingdom. Now, what does that kingdom look like? Well, we read from Isaiah 61 earlier this morning. And again, I want to encourage you this afternoon, just open Isaiah 61 and read through it slowly. Have a finger in Matthew 5 and compare the two texts and see how Jesus is drawing from all of these wonderful kingdom promises in Isaiah 61. The Beatitudes draw from many texts in the Old Testament, but the primary text that Jesus seems to be leveraging is that 61st chapter from the prophet Isaiah. And in that chapter, we are told about the nature of the kingdom as the prophet says, I will rejoice and my soul will exult because my God has clothed me with righteousness. The coming of the kingdom is a day of great rejoicing. It is one wherein our souls are exulting. Why? Because in that day we are clothed. And we will see the glorious righteousness that comes from the gospel. 
We enjoy it now, the second we put our faith in Christ. And on the last day, we will see with clearer vision the truth of our salvation, that God has made us oaks of righteousness. Read through that last third of the prophet Isaiah and see how often he speaks of the kingdom. And it is a joyous place to be. Our cheeks will ache in the kingdom because we will be smiling so much. There will be so much laughter in the kingdom. So much rejoicing. He will wipe away every tear as you enter. The ones who are lined up at the gate of the kingdom are the spiritually impoverished. No one else. And they enter, and as they enter, Christ himself wipes away your tears, and immediately you are a joy-filled person. In an ever-going, everlasting, ongoing reality, you will be in the kingdom with Christ, rejoicing with him. And so, what impetus is there to declare yourself this day to be spiritually bankrupt? You may be happy now. There is a real happiness that is obtainable in the realities of this fallen world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And add to that the promise that the kingdom will be yours. The kingdom of heaven will be yours and you will dwell there with Christ. This is the promise for the poor in spirit. When I go home at the end of each day, there is a pile of flyers and adverts in the mailbox. Every day without fail, sure as the sun will set, there will be some flyers in my mailbox. And every single one of them in some way, is promising me happiness. A lot of them promise me happiness today. Immediately, right now. Some of them promise me happiness in the future. They project a future time when I'll be rewarded. And some of them promise both. All I have to do is buy into whatever it is they're selling. There's often a picture with a family with brilliant white teeth and great smiles. And the implication that they're trying to communicate to me is, look how happy you will be if you just accept this invitation. And every single flyer gets put straight into the trash. Because we all know it's a lie. It's a fake invitation. It's not real. 2,000 years ago, Christ issued an invitation. Which is as true today as it was the day in which he spoke it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pray with me.
Father, we praise you for your grace that you have made available for us a means of flourishing in this life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In a way that does not make sense to a watching world, the pathway to such flourishing is poverty in our spirits. Give us the grace to daily declare ourselves to be spiritually bankrupt because of our great sin in its depth, in its extent. We are spiritually bankrupt. Give us this grace every day to run towards that confession and to see our only source of spiritual wealth in Christ. May our hands be empty as we run towards the cross. May we understand and enjoy and truly experience the flourishing that Christ promises. And as we do so, may we ever keep before us the wonderful reality that for the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Instill in our hearts a glorious vision of the coming kingdom and cause us to be steadfast, poor in spirit, flourishing, as we wait for Christ, we pray in his name.